I, I think we can do this. I'm going to do this in phases. I'm going to do first phase if it's okay with you guys. I'm just going to talk about what is life, what is life coaching and what is coaching for elites in, in business, elite people, and why they do it. And, and I think it's really important because the one thing that I find in the world is that everybody's got an opinion of how it's best to be you. And I think for the greater majority of the information you get, you need to push it away especially corporate training, especially corporate training. I think you've got to push it away. And, and I think uh, it, that's unfortunate, really, because what's happened is the world has become flooded with opinions about how to be a good you. Um, and it's all got tangled up because once upon a time, maybe a couple of hundred years ago, it was a religious thing that no one was allowed to question. Then we learned to question religious things, and so we started to examine how is it best to be me. And then we came up with sort of uh, human development or self-help or whatever you want to call it, personal mastery, around the turn of the last century. Uh, so at about 1910 or something like that, they started coming out with um, books and things about how to be, how to master things and how to be a master of sales and how to be a master of people, how to be a master of leadership. And I, I think everything that's ever been written is true for its time. And so if you go back when certain books were written, say two, three, four, five hundred years ago, even a thousand, even two thousand, even three thousand, everything was written was true in its time. But everything grows and evolves. And so I think um, basically... What we're dealing with a lot in the world is people telling us how to be us, how it would have been great about 20 years ago or even 10. And it, the information we're getting from LinkedIn or YouTube or TED Talks is antiquated. It's, it's just not keeping pace. And the sort of people that I end up coaching are people who have, um, are not evolving as fast as the world around them is evolving. So the business is changing and they say, I don't like the company I work for. Or the amount of work they're getting on loaded onto them is growing, but their process of handling that volume of work is not growing at the same pace. In other words, they're not getting, we're not getting more done in less time. We're trying to get more done in more time, right? So if you can understand the definition of evolution or the definition of coaching is to help you be ahead of the curve. In other words, if, there's stre if you're stressed at work, it means you've, you're not evolved enough to handle the world around you. If you're stressed at home, the world is changing and the world's not wrong. It is what it is. It's got COVID. The world's not wrong. Our ability to handle the world can be... Uh, not wrong, but stuck. And so it's really hard because people think that they are what they think. So as a coach, what I have to deal with continually is the, the definition of a self-identity. A person says, I am what I think. I, I think there should be this happening, or I think there shouldn't be that happening, or I think this is the best way to handle it. And and I can't argue that they're wrong. <laughs> what I can say is that 
if you're stuck in an identification of a thought process or a way to think or something you think, if you, if you get stuck, the world is going to get bigger and you're going to find it hard to adapt to it. So as a great example of this, when people come to me and say, I've got too much work, I'm very stressed. I think I'm knocked back to two days a week or three days a week. I say that is a really, really big mistake. That's a one-way direction in the opposite direction to where a high-performance individual would go. They would say, how do I get more done in five days a week so that I have more time out or I can do more? Because the person who gets the most done in the shortest time is called the what? What is it called? It's called the boss. <laughs> it's the leader. So if you take the leader of anything, they get the most done in the least time. The way they do it quite often is stump it on you. <laughs> so so you, you're also faced with the push down from leadership that says, I'm going to get the most done in the most time. And the way I'll do it is I'll just dump it on somebody. And sometimes we're that person. And then we're left with the question, how do I get more done in less time? So I think point number one, coaching is about evolving. And stress, overwhelm, uh, frustration, uh, wanting to jump ship, which means you know, uh, retire or work less at days, all of these are signals that coaching is required or evolving is required somehow. Has anyone got any thoughts they'd love to share on that before we go any further? Let me stop sharing this page. How do I stop sharing it? That's more of a question, isn't it? Oh, well. Yeah. And I think uh, it, 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 whenever somebody arrives at me for coaching and they're in an executive role like yourselves, um, their process of handling work is fixed. The amount of work is getting bigger. Time is the only thing we get left to throw at the solution. I'll just do more. And, or I'll work faster, faster, faster. And then we say we've got stress because we're working so fast the fun goes out and we're hammering away at it, trying to drive the car fast through traffic that won't let you drive through traffic fast. And so evolution is, I think, number one, I think it's really important to say that the purpose of coaching is to evolve you. And the number one step in evolving is to get more done in less time. So if you've got a volume of work on your table, like you've got like two weeks work and you need to get it done in a week, typically we'll throw time at it. We'll work late and we'll rob our family, we'll rob our exercise time, we'll rob, we'll steal time from some aspect of our life, which is very short-term thinking because if we rob time from the family, they're not going to be happy and they're going to uh, bitch about that and you're going to be in all sorts of domestic trouble. If you rob time from your health and your sport and your activities, you know, uh, Centennial Park and what have you, if you steal time from that to give it to work, you're going to regret that too. So there's a lot of things we do instead of evolving, we, sab we, we sabotage things long-term and do things in a very short-term thinking pr process, right? So the number one uh, pr process that coaching needs to be able to do is to say to you, what's your volume of work and how do we get it done in less time? And you go, 
That's not possible. And I, I say this, this is a funny joke. I take CEOs of any company, including yours, and I say, I can get, I can get all your work done to that CEO. I can get all your work done in half the time you currently do it, and I can do it. Give me a job for a week, follow me around, and I'll do your job in half the time. So what I do is I start cutting out the blah, blah. I say, is this conversation necessary? Is this meeting necessary? Is this dialogue uh, effective? Am I listening or am I talking? Am, you know, and I start to weed out the, what's called the necessary padding. I weed it off. And then after two or three days, they, they put their hand up and say, oh my God, I didn't realize how much I was doing things out of obligation rather than out of, is it effective? I wasn't asking the right question before whatever I did. The second thing I do is I work out what their priorities are. So if I say to the CEO, I'm gonna do your job in half the time, including your company, the first thing I say is, how are you measured? How are you measured? And they go, well, share price. I go, okay, give me the things you have to do this week. <laughs> And if I can't link them to share price, I cut them off. I don't say don't do them. I just say they're not priorities. We need to know what's valuable. And at work, our company says, I'm going to measure you on a certain thing. And you need to know what that thing is. Because then the HR department comes in and says, I'm going to give you 360-degree feedback on what people think about you. And you go, well, now I'm messed up. You've given me a tangible measure of my output. <laughs> I want you to get this done at this time and this way. And I'm gonna measure whether you like people like you or not. <laughs> so you, you get this conf conflicting set of uh, ob obligations and it's really important to understand that they are diverse, that really getting something done and being liked are not the same topic. And so sometimes you have to own the fact that you have to be a little, uh, what's the word for it, cold? And you have to say, sorry, this is not getting my, the job that I'm being measured by. It's not getting it done. And I would say you could save a day a week if you were able to apply the priorities principle to that. Just say, I link it to, I link it to my measure or I sink it, <laughs> link it or sink it. Is that making sense to you so far, guys? It's really important because you can save a lot of time if you link it or sink it. Link it to how you're measured. How does your company measure you in tangible form? I'm not talking about the HR department. They're, they're operating on another paradigm. I'm talking about if you don't get this done on this time and this way and this color or something like that, you're out. They're going to fire you. And then they say, are you likable? And do you work well with others? And you go, okay, two different topics. But my priority, number one, is to say, what are you measuring me by? And how can I do that in the shortest possible time by taking out the fluff that, I've that, that people pack around that, that outcome? My partner, I'll mention her quite a few times in this because I'm, I'm so respectful of what it takes. She's... Three years ago, decided she's an elite swimmer and she decided that she wants to be in the, in the Olympic Games. And so she, what's well, four years ago now, 
So she trained for uh, three years and she'd never done a triathlon in her life, never ridden a bike uh, competitively. She was a slow runner and she started training and she had injury after injury after injury. And the thing was what it got down to, and she was reserved for the Dutch Olympic team waiting in Cairns for a flight just in case she was needed. So she achieved it in a way. What she had to do is work out how could she get more fit in less time? Because in triathlon, there's three things you've got to train for as hard as anyone trains for any one of them. So the question was, how does she get more done in less time? And the whole thing was about changing coaches and finding people around the world who could give her science that would get her faster on her bike without six months of training to, get, to teach her how to run faster without three years to reduce her run times. And so I watched this process being applied, the evolution of an athlete. And she was forced to because this was her swan song, this Tokyo Olympics was her opportunity at her age to compete for her country. So I, th I think that how do I get more done in less time becomes, should be on the top of your desk, above your uh, computer screen, uh, sitting up there, tattooed onto the back of your hand, <laughs> on your forehead when you look in the mirror. <laughs> it should be everywhere you look. How do I get more done in less time? And step one, what did we say? Step one is know your goal, know how you measured. Step two, prioritize. Three, cut out the waffle. Now, as I've said, I've, I'm able to take anybody's job and, and I can actually, not technically, but I can do their job, in, especially a CEO, because it's mostly talking and managing and things like that. I can do it in a very short period of time because I take away the fluff. Blah, 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 blah. And they go, oh, it's really important, the fluff. And I go, I'm not arguing that topic, but it's not as important as the share price by which you'll be measured. <laughs> it's no different to... Your family life, you say, okay, I'm with my kids, I'm with my family, I'm at home. How am I measured? Am I measured by the number of times I've vacuumed the floor? Am I measured by how many beds I make? How am, I, am I measured by uh, how long I take to cook the dinner? How am I measured by that? No, you're measured by how many times you kiss your partner on the cheek as you walk past. And you're measured by how many times you give a compliment to somebody in the house. You're measured by the, the, the way you make someone else feel. And I know you've got to vacuum and I know you've got to clean and I vacuum and I clean. We, we all got to do these jobs. But they can't, you can't call that relationship. You've got to call that fluff. <laughs> the fluff. And if fluff, if you say, I'm sorry, I can't kiss you right now or I can't compliment you right now or I can't hug you right now or I can't give you uh, some of my undivided attention right now, I'm too busy vacuuming. Uh-oh. <laughs> welcome, welcome to low-priority stuff occupying the space of measurable stuff, the stuff you're measured by. Any comments? <laughs> Completely. Uh, is how easy it becomes, right? How easy it is to work on low priority. And do you know something really interesting? If you work 
if, if you have a set of priorities, you know, how am I measured? Number of kisses I give, number of compliments I give, number of touches I make. If I'm measured by that, by my kids, and I work on low priorities, thinking it's really important, our self-worth drops automatically when we work on low priority stuff. So if you follow somebody on holidays, and this is interesting, it's very, very interesting. If you follow somebody who goes on holidays and they go with their family and they're walking down, I don't know, uh, uh, the main street of Hawaii, Honolulu, somewhere, they're, they're walking down the main, window shopping with the kids and they feel good about it because there they are with the family and they're all walking down the street and they're window shopping. The self-worth of the parents is dropping even though they're enjoying time off. Because if you stop that person in the street and you say to that person, what's your, one, what's your number one goal in life? And they say, oh, support my family or build a business or uh, win the Olympics or uh, 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 live long or whatever their goal is. And I say, how is this, what you're doing now, making that happen? And they say, well, it isn't, but I'm doing it for the family. That's still a priority, but it's called a low priority. And whenever we work on low priorities, we sabotage our self-worth. Welcome to COVID. <laughs> I coach people all the time. Chris, I'm a bit late for the coaching. I've got to hang the washing out. Well, it's important. I had to hang mine out this morning too. Don't worry. We all have these things to do in life and they have to be done. But sometimes low priority stuff rises up. It put like walnuts in a barrel. When you shake a barrel with nuts in it, the walnuts for some reason come to the top. And suddenly we're doing all sorts of things but not working on high priority stuff. And even though we're getting it all done, we're doing a good job, as they would call it, uh, working from home. We're actually working off priority. And we're all doing it, don't worry. Um, you know, I, I, I'm supposed to be working, coaching all day, but I'm vacuuming and <laughs> doing the laundry in, in my spare time. And it, it's link it or sink it. I have to be really careful that I get enough of what's high priority done to cut myself a little bit of slack to do the dum-dum the jobs or the fluff, as I call them. So I used to go in the backyard and do Tai Chi every morning, and now I don't. What I do is hang the washing out. <laughs> That's the walker chi. Peg it up. <laughs> I peg it up, peg it up, and I'm, oh, oh, money, here's my socks. Oh, money, here's my underpants. Oh, I'm doing my hanging up the washing chi. So I kind of like had to integrate washing into doing something that's important to me. Being out in nature, being in the garden, getting some fresh air, and and while I'm doing it, I just hang the washing out. It's secondary. So what I do is I keep on priority and do the low priority things in the process. Vacuuming. I put some good music on. Maybe I even do a podcast, listen to a podcast or create a podcast. I go for a walk each day. And if you listen to my podcast, they're all on the beach. But actually, it's me on priority doing podcasts. That's my highest priority, doing, you know, speaking to people. But in the meantime, I walk on the beach while I do it. So I get some exercise which is a relatively low priority, 
to how I'm measured is I'm measured by my contribution to you guys. Does it make, am I making sense? Prioritization is really about self-worth. And I can't tell you what's your priority because I don't know what's your goal and I don't know how you're measured and all these things. All I can give you is the concept of it. Is that okay? Yes? So that's the first thing. The second thing about coaching is, and it's really important, is how do I come home from work this is the old school language because it's no longer, we're not coming home anymore, are we? We're all stuck at home. But how do I come home from work in the evening with more energy than I went to work with in the morning? So when I was a kid, my dad was so proud of himself. My dad was so proud. My dad would walk in the door and go, oh, I've had such the hardest day's work today. I'm exhausted. And kind of like it was to make us all feel so guilty that my dear dad was busting his butt just for us. It was, he was proud, so proud that he'd worked his ass off all day. And he goes, oh, it's been a hard day at work. And, you know, this is what I put in for you guys, you know, just so you can have bread on the table and proud, proud, and then if he's talking to the neighbour, yeah, yeah, it works really tough and I've done a great job this week and he, like, really boasts about how hard he's worked and I, I, I think that when times in his era, that was great language. But seriously, any person who's still boasting to this day that they work hard, they're stuck. They're stuck in the 50s or the 60s. They're stuck in their parents' modelling. Nobody should be proud of being busy. Nobody who's busy, if your boss says to you, you're busy, and you say yes, you don't get promoted because you've got no more capacity. <laughs> you're not going to give, you're not gonna, if someone's struggling in the B team, you're not going to put them in the A team because they're just going to, the A team demands more. So if you want to be promoted, you can't be busy. Someone says, are you busy? You go, nah, breeze. You're working hard? Get it done, it's intense, great work. Not hard. Hard work is bad management. It's the third chapter of my sacred love book. If you'd like a copy of my sacred love book, all about relationships and love and all this stuff, email me after this and you can have a freebie uh, PDF of it. So it's, it's a really, but the third, the third section of it is hard work is bad management. Oh, no way. And if I talk to someone over the age of 50, they refuse, like you guys are all really young. But if I talk to someone over the age of 50 and I say hard work's bad management, man, I get bitten. I lose my arm. They chew it off. How can you say that? If you tell that to the young people of the day, they'll just be lazy. They'll hang around and listen to their computers all day and they won't come to work. And they'd say, I've got these millennials who don't want to do their jobs. And, da, 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 da. and I go, no, hard work's bad management. They're learning to work not hard to get it done. And they're getting more done than you'll ever get done in half the time because they're smart. Hard work is bad management. So if you're not evolving, work becomes hard and you become busy. But if you're evolving, work becomes enjoyable and you're never busy. It's processing. Two things for coaching. What are they? Hard work is... Hard work is... 
Goody, thank you. And how do I get more done in less time? Link it or sink it. That's beautiful. So there's the two things. Hard work is bad management. Link it or sink it. And you might say to yourself, oh, God, Chris, this is really hard and this is really tough. Being left behind as the world heads down the path of post-COVID behaviour and integrates COVID into the reality of life, that we're forever going to have this bug. We're ever going to have COVID-19, COVID-21, COVID-27, Delta, and the next one and the next one. This is the new default. So we all have to be more accountable to ourselves to see when we, are, when we need to be red flagged, as it were. You know, in the walking race, the 50-kilometre walk on the Olympics, the poor people, they just, if they lift their heels or do something, the umpires stick up a red flag, they're disqualified, even after 49 kilometres of walking. So we need to have our own red flags. If you're busy, if you're overwhelmed, if, it's getting, if work is getting hard, hard work, if you don't have more energy at the end of the day than you had at the start, time to step back and look at the process, the way you're doing it. Not what you're doing, the way you're doing it. Stress is a red flag. It's saying, I'm stuck. And I've grown into a world that I just don't know how to deal with. And I can know how to deal with it by asking someone who already knows how to deal with it. We, there is infinite evolution. Inf so you'll never get to a point where you go, huh, look, I've got it. I got my shit together. It's all fine. Thank you very much. Good night. You'll never get there. You need a process to work through stuff every time. Here we are. This is where I, this is my paradise. This is um, what you can see on the left-hand side of the screen up there, the second, the one in the sort of the middle, the one in the back, that's Mount Everest. And this trail that you can see heading to Mount Everest, I walked that 60 times, same trail. And there and back, there and back, there and back. And I don't go up to Mount Everest, I go to the base camp, which is along the way there. And you learn so much about people along this trail. Um, you learn how people have a way of doing things and they don't want to change it really. And so uh, when you get up in the mountains and you get higher and higher and higher in business and in life, and your kids get older or your relationship gets longer, you can't function the same as you did in Sydney or Melbourne or wherever down at sea level. You cannot function up here in the same way. You have to walk slower. You have to drink more water. You have to pee every 20 minutes because your body's dumping liquid out of it. You have to be really careful what you eat because you get sick really easy because of the bugs in the, in the immune system. Um, and of course, there are no buses and trucks, but there is gravel. And you can see off the side of that path, it doesn't take much to put a foot wrong and you end up in the valley, which is two kilometres uh, to the right down below. So I think uh, when we talk about growing in life and growing in business and growing in things, we have to realise that although you might be living in the same house you've lived in for the last 10 years or five years or whatever it is, and COVID's come along, you're operating at a much higher altitude now. And I've taken so many people up here who refuse to adapt to the environment and want to just walk along or virtually run along that trail and prove how clever they are because they know how to do it. They're, 
they're sort of fixed in a way, a way they do things. And of course, they get not altitude sickness, they get attitude sickness. <laughs> so the third thing about coaching is beware of attitude sickness. Attitude sickness is when we want to be right. Whenever you find yourself uh, saying, I'm right, you're wrong, which means your opinion or your watch tells the right, my watch tells the right time, yours must be wrong. Whenever you find yourself in this dialectic sort of negotiating with someone at work, someone at home, the kids, and you say to the kids, don't care, I don't care if they're four or 40, but when you talk to your kids and you go, I'm right, you're wrong, you shouldn't be doing that. And the language around this, this, um, this whole conversation is should. If you hear yourself say the words should or shouldn't to another human being on earth, stop, stop, stop. You're about to create trouble. You've got an, you're going to create an attitude. And that attitude is righteousness. And if you hear somebody saying, and this is really as important as what I just said, if you hear somebody saying to you, should or shouldn't, and you didn't ask them for their opinion, tell them to, f oh, better be careful. Sorry, it's a corporate presentation. Tell them to flip off. <laughs> I nearly blurted the F word, but tell them, go away. If you don't ask for advice and wouldn't pay for advice from somebody, don't listen to it. Now, this is probably... The hardest thing that I have to teach people throughout the whole world, and no matter what their age, is that when we get into a relationship, we sort of anoint our partner as the person who gives us advice or whose advice we listen to, even if they have no knowledge of the topic. A good example, again, is uh, Lottie in triathlon. When, I, when she first started, I knew more about bike riding than she did because I'd been doing it for one year after... after about after about three weeks, she knew more than I did because she was being coached by professionals. And so I'd say to her, we'd go on a bike run, I'd say, oh, you have to lift your pedal and make sure your foot's flat. And I'd give her a little bit of advice and she'd turn to me with this very Dutch and very determined look on her face as if to say, uh, you're wasting your breath. Better to pedal your bike a little harder and see if you can keep up. It, I think the words should and shouldn't are just exactly what this picture shows. When we get into shooting someone who didn't ask us for their opinion, or someone starts shooting or shouldn'ting us when we didn't ask for opinion, you must, you must put up a firewall. So this, this topic is the firewall. If you're going up in the Himalayas and you ask me to guide you, and I say you should or you shouldn't, but you have invited me and paid me. So you're saying, one, I'm asking Chris for your advice. Two, I'm paying for your advice. Then it's probably wise to listen. But if you didn't ask and you wouldn't pay, if it's a parent, a sibling, a friend, your best friend in the world, your partner, your school teachers, your boss, if you didn't ask for it, and you wouldn't pay for it, say no thank you. Now, you don't have to bite, you don't have to bang back and push them away, you can just let it go into the distance, into the wilderness. 
But up here, where you're going, guys, and this is as much as I metaphorically have this picture on the screen of Mount Everest and the base camp and all these things, what I'm saying is you're operating probably at a higher level than you ever thought uh, than you were educated to be operating at. You've evolved into a high level of, and the world around you has got higher. And so it's really wise to be careful of the right, wrong, should, shouldn't uh, paradigm and rem remember these great words, if you wouldn't pay for it and didn't ask for it, don't listen to it. That's what they say, free advice isn't worth the paper it's written on. <laughs> the question here was, how do I get people to listen to me? Are you listening to what I'm saying today? Why? Okay, so A, you believe that I've got something to share. Um, so there's a, an acknowledgement that maybe uh, I, I, I've got some gift to give you and you would like it. B, I'm making it a little more interesting by talking about Himalayan, so I'm engaging you. So I think communication and being heard is not just about uh, should it, should and shouldn't. I think it's about um, having the uh, confidence in what you're talking about that you that you know it works, so that you you speak with uh, not with a question mark at the end of it. Um, your voice tone, uh, the way you communicate, and you've got a lovely accent, but your voice tone has a question mark at the end of everything you say. So you go. Cats are really nice. <laughs> and that is a question, not cats are really nice. Uh, so it, uh, and I'm not saying go to the extreme, but I, I, I think number one, you've got to come from, you've got to believe in what you say yourself and come from a place of experience with that, that you've tested it, tried it and proven it. And I think the other thing about it is to, um, it, 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 you know, it's direct advice to a, a very hard question to answer in screen, but. I think um, people will listen to something that they're interested in, but they won't listen to something you're interested in. So if, you're, if I'm talking to you about this Mount Everest and, um, uh, and I start going like this, well, Lotzi's in the middle and, and uh, uh, Mount Everest, Sagamata is there and it's 8,000, and I start rattling off this stuff about all these mountains, you're gonna, you're gonna switch your screen off and go and have a cup of tea. So I've got to relate, I've got to catch you in your interest to deliver what I would like to deliver. So I think the whole communication thing is a lot to do with reaching across the table, finding out what that person's interested in and feeding it. I, I do, and I think that's, that's a practice skill. And that's something that you would possibly, if you're with a coach or someone at work, you say, I want to practice the skill of engaging people which is finding out what they're interested in and then delivering to their interest what you want to be heard about. Uh, otherwise, this Mount Everest picture in front would be so horrendously uh, boring to all of you if it didn't have some relevance to being in lockdown in Sydney. For about, I could get you for about three minutes, two minutes, I suppose. There's a couple of mountains and here we are up here. By the way, uh, I can't point to it with my mousey thing. Can you see my mouse there? Yeah, you can. You see all the little buildings down in the valley there? That's, that there is a monastery um, 
Tengboshe Monastery. And that's four, down there in that valley, what you're looking at on the screen, is 4,000 metres above sea level, which is about the height of Mont Blanc. So when you're looking at the mountains all around, 8,000 odd metres, where the relative altitude that you're at in this image is just unbelievable. Because this is that's that where those buildings are down there, the monastery. That's as, just about as high as all the mountains in Europe. <laughs> so um, we're only half. This is four thousand, and Mount Everest up there is eight thousand six hundred meters. So uh, you know, it's 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 a pretty interesting place to be. And you and you're there. You guys are at a high place, at a high altitude. You're talking on a computer. You're you're. You're dialoguing about work and balance and life, uh, and the world around you has has grown exponentially over the last five years with all the things going on, and so you're operating in a very rarefied atmosphere. So you can't operate like everybody else. So um, to your question uh, about people should and shouldn't, you know, somebody at sea level says walk faster, but you're up here. If you walk faster, you're going to die. So you have to say, I kind of like get where you're coming from, from where you're at, where I'm at looks uh, easy to solve, but it isn't. I'm at altitude here. And all of you on this screen, you're at altitude. You're operating in very rarefied atmosphere, highly competitive environment with your, with your firm, highly competitive uh, human development uh, environment. And so... A lot of the people you know, your siblings, your parents, your friends, a lot of them aren't. And they give you really easy advice that if you take it, you're going to sabotage your journey up here. I had a lady come to my program and uh, up for a walk uh, uh, just before we move on uh, to lighten the load here a bit. Uh, <laughs> uh, I had a lady come along on the program and um, there were nine people in the group and there was one young woman, she's 25 or something, and I noticed that she wasn't all that happy all the way through. And we, after three or four days, um, she kept asking every lodge we stayed in, she kept asking them for a cake of soap. And I'm going, what the heck, she's going through a lot of soap, this person, and there's no showers up here, so she's doing you know, um, armpit baths and going through cakes of soap. Anyway, I, I found out that one of the people in the group had given her advice. And the advice was, because this young girl, 25, had become constipated, one of the people in the group who lives in Singapore had given her advice to turn a cake of soap with a pencil and <laughs> shave the cake of soap down to about the diameter of a pencil and stick it up a bum. <laughs> As a cure for constipation. Now... I guess down in Singapore or down in, in Dubbo or, or down in the earth level, you can do things like that if you're out in the bush because there's no altitude involved and there's no Nepalese dal involved. And, but I had the feeling this girl had spent the last three days blowing bubbles out of bum, <laughs> walking along at high altitude, <laughs> taking advice from someone who had never been in altitude in their life before and never walked this trail. So... People give kindness and they give advice and they say shouldn't, shouldn't, but they're, they're taking it from their reality and putting it into yours. So I think you, it's what this picture really says and, and what I'm trying to say here is 
you operate in a rarefied atmosphere and you have to give yourself credit for that. In this rarefied atmosphere, there's very few people who know how to do what you do well. And so most people's advice, and it could be mine if I start dictating to you how to be you and how not to be you. What's really important here is until somebody really knows the environment you're operating in and what the demands are and how you're, how you're dealing with it and how you, how you could improve, they don't know the rarefied atmosphere of your reality. And I think you need to be proud of that reality. You need to say, this reality is high altitude, rarefied atmosphere, very few people understand it. Therefore, I'm gonna be very cautious about what people say should and shouldn't do for me. And that's what I said earlier in the conversation. Most of the advice you hear in the world, push it back. Say thanks, but no thanks. If you wouldn't pay for it and you didn't ask for it, don't listen to it. So let's just move on from this picture and go to the next one. So the purpose of uh, getting coached or talking like we're talking now, having this session online, is to reduce the risk of life. Reduce the risk. So... Basically, if I take you up in the Himalayas or I take you on a business journey or I take you anywhere, I think the first question you ask about a coach is, have they been there before? Because if this person hasn't walked where you're about to walk, their advice is theory. And, and I think coaching is for children. It's really life coaching and stuff. It's mostly for children. It's mostly juvenile. Um, and, and most of the coaches who are coaching have never been where they're taking you to. So they're kind of like guessing, you're kind of like guessing, and now there's two people guessing, but one person's making the other person more, let's say, uh, less independent. So the coach's, what the, the coach's journey is in your life, if you choose one, is to having, having walked down the path that you're going, having walked down that road where you're going, reduce the risk of you slipping or making a mistake but they do not take away from you your independence and your, your um, trust of your individuality and your trust of your intuition. If the coach starts to tell you what to do rather than advise you what to do, then you really need to uh, step back because a, co a coach is not a parent. A coach is not someone who holds your hand through something. A coach gives you advice that they have experienced and tries to help you relate it into your experience so you make your own choices. And that's, I think, at the end of the day, if you give up that uh, independence and you give up that intuition and you give up those things, it's making you weaker and not stronger. And that will have a, in, in terrible ramifications in your personal relationship at home. So the five lies of coaching are, if you hear somebody promise you pleasure without pain, cross them off because there is no such thing on earth. If a person says, once we get you across or through this difficult time, everything will be okay. If you hear them say that, once we get you through this difficult time, everything will be okay, cross them off the list. Because that's a promise of a future that is going to overcome today's unhappiness and when a person promises a future that overcomes today unhappiness, they're setting you up for depression. The third one is um, that they say, if you follow the rules of um, uh, this book, or if you follow that, you'll, you'll be a much better person. In other words, they, they 
try to create some sort of an identity uh, that you'll be a, you'll be better than everybody else if you do something everybody else doesn't do. And a good example of that is meditation. If you meditate, you will have peace, unlike the rest of the world. And if you, as I have for 45 years, meet people who meditate a lot, uh, I guarantee you, it hasn't solved anything. It has not solved one problem. Not one. And I meet monks who've been meditating 80 years, and it hasn't solved one problem. They still take blood pressure pills. So you have to be really careful. The purpose of meditation is to send love, is to send energy to people who need it, not yourself. But we so often create self-identity out of meditation, say, I'm a meditator and therefore I'm important or I'm good or I'm better than somebody. And that's not the purpose of it. The purpose of it is always other. We teach this when we go up in the Himalayas and we go through monasteries and we visit ancient places and amazing things in India. We always teach people before you go in the front door, we say, you're not here for yourself. You're here for other. So if you're going to donate money, donate it to the nuns or the monks so that they can meditate and pray for the world's uh, well-being and whatever. Uh, but don't ask, you know, please give me a blessing uh, because I really need you. That's, uh, that's not how it works. Four, um, relies on fantasy to create... So if they say you'll be... They try to build your personal strength out of goals. Don't listen. And drives behaviour with a finite income. So what I just said... Bef uh, outcome. What I said before was you'll always have something to learn. <laughs> the more you know, the more you know you don't know. So coaching just says, I'll teach you a process of dealing with what you don't know because there's a lot more of that than what you do know. <laughs> Are you perspiring? Are you guys, oh my God, there's so much. What's going on? We have a lovely diversity of people's backgrounds here. We've got uh, Russell, what's, what's your heritage? Vietnamese, nice. And uh, are your parents uh, the first generation in Australia or their parents? Uh, do you speak Vietnamese? And how do you find the stuff I'm talking about compared to the teachings of your parents and the lineage of the Vietnamese culture and what have you? How do you find what I'm saying uh, in that context? So, Baga, uh, Baga, did I get it right? Baga? And so your background is from, nice, which part of India? Okay, great. I, I didn't go that south, but I've been, uh, spent a lot of time in Mysore, near Bangalore. Uh, I lived there for, uh, I lived there first time for six months. Ah, I love South Indian food. You give me a plate of, uh, give me a tali plate of South Indian food and I'm, I'm in paradise, mate. So. <laughs> oh, I love it. And it's hard to find. It's hard to find here, really authentic food. And I can see, Isha, I can see you nodding. So I guess you've got some uh, similarities. Bangalore's, Bangalore for me is famous. It's got the best bookshop in the world. They've got a bookshop in Bangalore and it's so big and it's so dirty and it's so deep and it's so full of dust and it's so full of antique books. Whoa, <laughs> it's just... It's just a mind-bending place, so yeah. 
I have a, a running coach that I admire. Um, he has a, a, a run crew. It's at um, um, Centennial Park, and he has a, and he says to people when they come for running, he says, "Go for a run," and here's my promise: it'll never ever get any easier. You just get faster. <laughs> I think, um, ha you know, when I talk to people, I say, "How do you make the best out of a bad thing?" And that's the journey: is how do you make the best out of a bad thing? If you expect the bad thing to go away, then you'll be disappointed for the whole journey of your entire life. But how do you make the best out of a bad thing? If you can learn that skill, holy moly, what a miracle life you've got. No matter how bad it gets, how to make the best out of it. And, and I think, um, and that's, that's one of the great uh, things that you, you, you can learn is that uh, if, you're, if you're an athlete and you go to the Olympic Games or you go to the local park and you're doing a run and you're Mount Everest, the top of Mount Everest for an athlete is putting the flag in the very top. But about halfway up, they, they, maybe they're not going to make it, right? So if they keep focusing on not going to make it, the chemicals that they inject into their own body through their thinking exhaust them. So if you watch the Olympics and people are running and they're coming very, very last, or they're not going to win, they very, very often fall down or trip over or hurt the hamstring and they suddenly sabotage the trip. And that's because when you start to realize you're not gonna make it, you're gonna lose. You, and you keep your eye focused on that uh, top of the mountain, the winning the race, and you, there's a chemical starts to drain out of your body. And what you start to build up is, is acidity which is causing of illness, right? So you start to build up acidity and you start to build up all the chemicals of failure and they're horrible. They don't help you go faster. Instead, they help you go slower. Lactic acid and all these things that cause illness, cause cancer, they cause all sorts of illness. So instead, what you do is you're in a race running along and you realise you're not going to win. You have to invent another game. You go... I'm not going to win, but I could do my personal best. Now, you've still got a positive, affirmative thought. And then you go, look up at the clock and you go, oh, shoot, I'm not going to do my personal best. Maybe I can have, uh, maybe I can finish this proud. So you create even a smaller goal. But you, the, the trick is no matter, although you've got your sight set on winning, when you realise you're not, to re reframe the experience. So you get smaller and smaller and smaller until you say, as long as the next moment of my life is got a sunshine and got a flower in it, that's okay. And the chemistry of that makes a person succeed. So we set big goals. We set big, a big goal in our life. We say, I want that. And then sometimes we look up and you go, uh-oh, I'm not going to make it. And you go, maybe I can just pull the goal down into a place where I know I am going to make it. And which is, uh, my, instead of winning the race against my competitors, do my personal best. Instead of my personal best, maybe I can pull the thing down into the best 10 metres I've ever run. And maybe if I can't do the next 10 metres that I've ever run, maybe I could feel the lightness of my feet along the floor and feel the lightest I've ever felt. And you just keep shrinking and shrinking until it becomes positive. Now, the, that thought of I'm winning no matter what causes 
uh, cortisol and causes all, uh, all uh, chemicals of happiness, which makes you run faster or work better or enjoy life more. And I find this very much happens at home. When you're at home, you've got a goal, which is to have a happy family, to have a happy house. And not always is it happy. But, and we go, oh, this house is not happy. And we get all mentally disrupted by it and we go like that. The smarter thing would be to do is, how can I just for now, today, shrink the goal from having a happy family to having healthy kids or having a healthy environment or having nice flowers in the house. You can cause a success and shrink the success down and down and down until it's very easy. And that keeps the chemicals of uh, health, the, the chemicals of health and happiness uh, producing. And from that, you rebound really quickly. But if you allow, you say, I want a happy family and my ha family's not happy. I want a happy family and my family's not happy. I want a happy family and my family's. If you keep that hammer hammering on the bell, it starts to produce all the nasty things that take weeks to get out of your body. Like a, you know, a day, a, a really bad day like that can take weeks for the chemistry that comes into your being. You know, most people I work with who got a depression, it started mental. They got a mental depression. But then the body, the, the depression causes, or thinking depressive thoughts, causes the body to produce a chemical. And so they end up chemically depressed. And so you can't get the person out of that depression if they get chemically depressed without chemicals. So you have to re-engage uh, the, the diet and the chemistry of their body and maybe even an antidepressant pill, something to flush out that, that chemistry and then start regaining their mental place to sustain a, a life without getting depressed. But thought patterns end up automatic. They end up chemical. And I think that's where we have to be really alert at home when we're our own boss. And we're sitting in our own chair in our own place and we're going, oh, oh I'm not feeling cool about this. I'm angry about something not going right. And you pull the goal back a little bit. You pull the goal back a bit until you go, actually, that's working. I'm, at least I'm sitting straight in my chair. At least I, I'm having a nice cup of coffee. At least I'm, you know, and then wind it, wind it back out again. But if you don't, the chemical starts to become fixed in. Myra, is that how you say your name, Myra? Yeah? What's your background, Myra? Filipino, nice. And are you, uh, are you, did your parents migrate or you, yeah? How long ago? Right. And did they, why did they come to Australia? What was their, did they want to get away from the troubles in the Philippines at the time? No way. Oh my gosh, that's an amazing story. Where did, where did whereabouts in the States did they end up? Yeah, yeah. Because there's a big alignment between the Philippines and the States. That would have been an, a relatively easy, easy visa compared to Australia. So, wow, good on them. They're so brave. Now, I've just about... Caroline, you look like you're uh, born and bred Aussie. You've got an accent. Wales! Uh, and uh, 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 your parents here or there? Oh, man. So you've made a family here. It's nice. 
But do you, do you, are your parents coping with the COVID okay over there? I think we will. I think we're going to learn from the UK. We will. We'll learn from there. We need a prime minister as crazy as the UK's one. <laughs> what a dude. <laughs> He's afraid of nothing, that guy. Sylvia Gomez. Now, that's a hint that there's a Hispanic something in the background. What's it? Ah. Wow. But don't uh, lose that accent ever, all right? <laughs> and he is telling uh, jokes in English, in Aussie English yet. Uh, that's the big, yeah, <laughs> that's, that's the big, that's the big benchmark. If you can start telling jokes and people laugh, then you've got it pretty right. That's as good as you need to be, I think. Ah, congratulations. Well, great to see you here and uh, keep that accent, all right? Don't lose that. And uh, Amanda, what's your, what's your background? What's your story? Where, where were you born? Ah, there you go. Ah, nice, 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 nice. Wow, well, it, it, um, a lot of my partner, uh, of course, all her family are over there, but she's found the community of Dutchies here, so there's plenty. Well, that's great. Well, it's beautiful to meet you all personally, and, um, and so now I would love to go back uh, in the time we have, and what was the big question? Consciousness versus happiness, right? Is that one we'd like to do? All right, so I'm gonna open this share thing again. Consciousness versus happiness. So, here. So, unconscious means polarized thinking. So, if we, if we take the human, the structure of the human mind, which is a really interesting animal. It's the big picture of how the human mind is. But let's just talk about the seven le levels of human thought. And we say um, there is a part of our brain which is very unevolved. Therefore, what we're going to call that unevolved means unconscious. That is really important to us because without it, if we didn't have the cellular brain or the lowest level of consciousness within us, we could never jump out of the way of a, of a dangerous situation. We could never jump, fight or flight. We could never react. So the ability to react spontaneously to danger or to pleasure, because they're the two opposite ends of a spectrum, the ability to do that is, is what's called unconscious. But it's essential. So we're not condemning unconsciousness to bad, what we're saying is we really, really need it. Um, if, if, if there was a violent moment or a pleasureful moment that we want to go, you know, buy a lotto ticket and win the lotto or we're talking about the luck of the draw or um, falling in love instantaneously, all these, uh, all these situations, they're all, they all relate to the cellular brain and they all basically tie into being able to handle uh, immediate, spontaneous decisions to avoid hurt. So the got to seeks pleasure, 
avoids pain. And whenever we seek pleasure or avoid pain at its extreme, we're in what's called the unconscious state. That means most of it is operating at a, a level of an animal. Uh, if you put food near a dog, it'll eat it. If you put uh, uh, two dogs that um, a male and a female nearby each other, they'll eat each other with a feed. You know, you've seen dog fights. So the animal world is built out of, um, not out of consciousness, but it's built out of um, uh, instinct. So unconscious behavior is when we operate out of instinct, and which is what marketing relies on. So all advertising, um, all fundamentalist religion, all reactions that are unthought of, like if you um, see a, uh, a, a really sexy person walking down the street and you go, <gasps> wow, or, or something of the sort. They are all unconscious. And, and unconscious um, means that they seek pleasure and avoid pain. Now, why is that the unhappiest place on earth? Well, it's really interesting that the place that seeks pleasure should actually be the unhappiest place on earth. So all depressions and things like that have at their root unconsciousness. And the reason is that when we seek a pleasure, we perceive that pleasure not to have any pain attached to it. Like having an affair or eating an ice cream or uh, too much wine or over drinking coffee, we are, we are attracted to things that we think do not, have a, do not have a pain. So we seek pleasure, avoid pain. And when we do that, when we get the pleasure, suddenly we realize that the pleasure had at its root a balance of pleasure and pain. So we get a shock. So although the cellular brain, the fight flight, is meant to save our lives, we often use it mistakenly for decision making. So if we use the cellular brain, the got-to brain, for decision-making, we're making choices that were meant to be life-saving but have now become life-engaging. So someone says, would you like to change your job tomorrow? I'm going to pay you $100,000 a year more. And you go, yes! And after about two months, you go, oh my God, I didn't realise I was working in a jail and I didn't realise I was going to have uh, this, all this horrible work to do. And you go, oh, it's not worth it. And so the, 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 the baiting the hook or causing people to uh, act and act outside of their logic is the engagement of the unconsciousness. That unconsciousness is essential for, for life-saving experiences, but it should never, ever be applied to decision-making. But because it is applied to decision-making, marketing can take advantage of that. Uh, 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 people sell uh, drugs and people sell alcohol, which feeds into this cellular brain, which we should never be used for decision-making, to cause it to make decisions. So with a foggy mind with alcohol-fueled brain that's operating in a got-to, it, it mistakenly starts to, instead of being there to protect us, mistakenly starts to make decisions for us. And we really need to be on a red alert not to allow that spontaneity, that, that, uh, that instinctive animal instinct which smells a cake and wants to eat the cake before thinking, I wonder if that cake's poison. Because the, 
the person who smells the cake and eats the cake uh, might have actually just eaten something that's not good for them, but they've been triggered and, and used their cellular brain, which is there to save their life for a decision. The next level up is, is uh, of thinking, which is still called, uh, I think, unconscious, is where we're, where we're um, engaged through the process of complicity in a community where a, a whole church group or a whole religious group creates a, a sense of, uh, in the second level, is a sense of how do I overcome the fears of my life? Now, this brain is, needs to be there, right? You need to have this part of your mental acuity to say, what do I fear and how do I avoid it? What do I fear and how do I avoid it? What do I fear and how do I avoid it? That's a good part of your mind. However, it was never meant to make decisions. So what it does, it gets lazy and it says, uh, it walks into the pizza shop and says, uh, could you sell me a religion, please? I'd like to buy a thought process. I don't want to think. I don't want to think that I think. I don't want to think about thinking. I just want you to tell me how do I overcome all my fears by subscribing to your Pizza Hut. Pizza Hut. And so the, that part of the brain becomes really strong because we repeat and repeat and repeat and repeat through learning and iteration. We, re, we repeat religious values that enable us to sort of get lazy and trust that part of our brain again to make decisions. But it was never built to make decisions. It was built to sedate us in a sense or give us some sense of comfort that the things we fear won't happen. And a lot of those fears are not just material fears like losing money or getting sick. Some of them are in, in uh, intangible fears like what do I do when I die? How do I deal with it if I become uh, um, unable to work? What will happen if I go broke? What would happen if I'm single? What would happen if? And so the ability for a packaged product that comes out of a pizza shop to solve your specific problems becomes how much you get attracted to that particular religious uh, or philosophical teaching. So you might say, oh, I'm not religious and I'm not spiritual, but I really like the teaching around Save the Whales, environmental. And that becomes your religion in a sense because it's right and wrong. Um, it's fear of the planet being uh, raided by corporates and so you've now got a protector from the fear. So this part of the brain is also unconscious because it should never be used for decision making. It's lazy and it's very, very out of balance. It's very, very lazy part of the brain. So what it tries to do is borrow from somebody else, their, their philosophy and their way of being. And that's why the should is a very common collaboration in the world that people say, you, even your parents when you've grown up and you've got your own kids will still say, you should do this or you shouldn't do that. It's, they'll, they'll still be trying to project their fears and their solution to their fears onto you, even though you're well down the track, far past where they were operating and you don't have the same fears. So this part of our mind is really important too. We need to have a moral or a, a sense of um, comfort in being who we are. Uh, and 
it doesn't matter so much whether we borrow it from uh, a religious base or a philosophical base or a self-awareness base or nature. What matters most is we never use that place for decision-making. If you make a decision out of a should, you will, very similar to the lower level, you will arrive at a point where, for example, we, people shouldn't be rude. There you go. What do I fear? I fear people being really nasty to me and I think people shouldn't be rude. But as you go up in business, you suddenly find a lot more rude people because it's more competitive up here at this rarefied atmosphere. And as it gets more competitive, people become more individualised and they, they worry less about what you think and they worry about you doing what you're told. So they say should, 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 should a lot. And, and so there's this, there's, there becomes a point where people shouldn't be rude. You go, but they are rude. They're rude by shooting me. So you, 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 you start to realise that this should that you've got, which is a philo philosophy, is not actually uh, engaged by everybody. Not everybody agrees with you. Now, what are you going to do? Well, grandma, if you talk to grandma, who's really, really old, and grandma, great-grandma, their shoulds have got smaller and smaller and smaller until their world has got tiny. You should close the door, and you shouldn't go out in the cold, and you should be nice to all people, and their world has shrunk and shrunk until it's this big. And then you go, well, good honour, Grandma. You're looking after your fears and you're doing the right thing, but if you want to expand your world and become a bigger operator in the world and do more for people and do more for your kids and be, do more for people with a more diverse group of people. You can't should yourself. You have to do the opposite. Unshould. And this is called unlearning. In other words, seeing the, what people say should, you need to see the opposite as well. See the balance. So we're going up now to need to which is another level, which is, an emo which is what the Greeks in once called soul, the solar plexus. And this need to is in the tummy. It's the, it's the, it's the emotional centre of a human being. And this is where we start to become a little more self-aware because we feel emotions. What do I feel? Again, it's a part of the mind that was never, ever, ever built for decisions. <laughs> it was built to be uh, to sense to be centrally engaged. So, what do I smell? What am I tasting? You know, what's what's my instinct? What's my intuition telling me about this situation? So, it's very important to hone this need to, because it'll sniff out a problem before it comes. It'll hear danger before it arrives. It'll taste something before you eat it, and you go, mm, "That prawn's off." That. It'll see something and recognise it before it actually arrives. So this need to is predictive. And it's very important emotionally. It's, it's, this, this is the emotional centre of the body. Very important to engage it. But it's extremely unconscious because so much of what we taste, touch, smell, eat um, and, and feel is memory. So relying on need to, relying on your emotional centre for decision making you'd have to be a monk or a nun. You'd have to be someone living in a really, really uh, pristine environment to be able to know whether your emotions are yours or your reactions or whether they're memories. It's very important 
not to trust your, your instincts when it comes to decisions and the way you operate, but it's very important to have them and re respect them. But boy, for, I've never met anybody, and I've lived with monks that are 80, 90 years old and who've been meditating, the whole, I haven't found anybody who really got this part of their mind clean. I haven't met anybody yet that someone can say, my sensory perceptions are accurate. Most people would say, my sensory memory is accurate. <laughs> so let's keep going up the list. Want to is what Maslow called uh, self-actualized. And so when we're self-actualized, we're saying, oh, this is what I want. And we're starting to really put the foot down and say, no, I know what my parents want, I know what they want, I know what my partner wants, I know what my kids want, this is what I want. And this is really important because then you become a little more trustable, a little more actualized, a little more aware. And in being that person, you become more reliable for others to, to, to uh, ask your opinion. So when you operate in a want to, you're starting to get well up the mountain, well up the, the thought process, and you can start to trust what you want versus what you do. In other words, your behavior versus your choices will start to line up. They start to get pretty cool. If you say, I want that jacket, and you go and buy it. But at want to, there is still what's called buyer remorse. And buyer remorse is when you go and do something, which we've all had, and you go, I want a new computer. And it arrives and you go, oh my God, I've spent a lot of money on this computer. You didn't quite think it all you, you operate a little bit on emotion, a little bit on appetite, but you didn't really think it all the way through. And you sit there and buy remorse is the single greatest challenge of all business in the world. That someone joins your firm, uh, the one you work for now, and they switch their internet over to you guys or their phone over to you guys. And then they're going to be looking for why they shouldn't have done it. Buy remorse. And... I heard a, a quote once that Mercedes spend nearly 90% of their advertising budget convincing people who have bought their cars that they made the right decision. They're not selling, because the cars sell themselves. They just have to predict and, and prevent by remorse. So, so far we haven't talked about happiness. What we've talked about is gratification. So gratification is when I got to, should do, need to, or want to do something, and I do it. I do it, um, but after I do it, which makes me happy for having done it, after I do it, I will have some level of regret. And the regret is the most it got to. The regret is next most it should do. The regret is uh, next uh, less at need to and less at want to. So regret kills happiness because if we do something and it really makes us happy, it should make us always happy, not just make us happy and then we regret it or we suddenly see we've, you know, we've bought it and we didn't realise uh, that we're going to have to pay it off for the next five years and, oh, my God, what have I done? So as we go up in higher and higher levels of altitude and higher and higher levels of decision-making and higher and higher levels of of evolution and higher higher levels of uh, family and higher higher levels of operating in the world the responsibility comes back to us to make decisions that we don't regret 
and that other people can trust but don't have to always understand. So sometimes you, people say, why did you do that? Why did you marry that one? Why did you get divorced? Why did you buy that car? And you go, because I love it. And they go, but there's, what's your logic? And you go, no logic. But if you were to examine your brain at this point, it would at love to, at the very top, which is consciousness, it sees drawback and benefit equally. Now, if we take that mental proposition down to got to, and you say, okay, you're walking across the road, there's a truck coming, you look at it and you go, oh, I love this. There's a benefit to me running away and there's a benefit to me being squashed and there's a drawback to me being squashed. You'd stand there and get squashed. So you can't use the consciousness uh, exclusively in life. The ability to go up and down this mountain and use what level of mind is uh, uh, suitable for each circumstance. If you're going on a romantic date, it'd be wise to be in a need to emotionally, sensorily connected place where your sense of smell and your sense of hearing and your sense of taste and your sense of um, uh, touch and your eyes connecting would be wise to use that part of your mind because it's very romantic. If you're setting goals and you're thinking about what's the future for me and how am I going to do the, you know, what am I going to do next year, you'd be wise to go into the want-to zone. If you're talking about um, fear management, you'd be wise to go down into the should-do. These levels of the mind are not wrong. Unconscious levels of the mind are not wrong. They're just very bad places to make decisions from. They're extremely judgmental. They're extremely stuck in memory. They're extremely repetitive. They're extremely uh, identified. So we, we get locked in to the lower levels of our consciousness and we get liberated by a higher level. So when I say I choose to or I love to, I'm pretty much operating in there's a benefit and there's a drawback, but this is what I love to do. If you tell an accountant this, they flip out. They go, no, 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 no. You, 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 there needs to be either more benefits than drawbacks or more drawbacks than benefits in order to make a decision. You go, no. no. You make a decision when there's equal benefits and drawbacks. When you're trying to make a decision at a very conscious level that has a very long-term implication. And I think, most importantly, because I work from nature, I'm not trying to uh, criticise something. I'm not saying you shouldn't do this and you should do this and you shouldn't do this. What I'm saying is everything has a reason. And it's not about not being romantic. It's not about not being fun. It's not about, it's about choosing how it affects you. And, and so happiness, real happiness, comes from a one word. And that word is called contentment. So I'm going to give you the key to, con to contentment, which is to say this. Um, whatever I'm doing right now, I love it. So a happy person wants what they've got. An unhappy person wants what they haven't got. So it's really important, guys, for you to remember this. A person who's happy wants what they've got. So if they've got, if the kitchen drawer slams on their fingers, they go, I'm so happy this happened. <laughs> 
and the blood's dripping off. And they go, I'm so happy that I got this thing because it'll remind me never to slam the kitchen drawer again. You know, like you've got to want what you've got. And even when it's really, really bad, where you, where you want to fruit out and flip about it, you go, no. Or your boss says, I want this done tomorrow and you're stupid and you You go, I want this boss. And then you go, I, don't, I can't work out why, but I've got to have faith that I really do want what I've got. However, we all, we all need balance. So it's very, very important not just to want what you've got to be happy. It's very important to also be unhappy. So life is not about happy. If you, if you go down the road going, I want to be happy, you will be forever, forever pissed off, annoyed, frustrated, angry, annoyed with the, the whole entirety of existence. You must say, I want to be unhappy and happy. But this is how I would word it. I want to be happy on the inside and unhappy on the outside. So I want to, I'd say this, contentment, fulfillment on the inside comes from seeing that you're doing what you love and loving what you do and you want what you've got. That's contentment internal. But then you have one goal in your life. And you can't have a goal in your life if you're happy with what you've got. <laughs> Otherwise you become boring, boring, boring old you that goes, I'm really happy with what I've got. And I go, nothing, you need nothing, you want nothing, you have everything. Yep, I've got everything I ever want. I go, well, you need to start reading the obituaries because your name's coming up pretty soon. <laughs> There's no purpose for you to be breathing. Right? The fact that we have a goal, one goal, and I recommend one, your Mount Everest, your summit, you need one goal. But then take the seven areas of your life and say, none of those things are going to become my goals. What I'm going to achieve is contentment, satisfaction and happiness in the seven areas of my life. So I build a foundation so then I can have one goal where I'm not happy. So the aspiration for happiness, internally, I w it wins. For me, it's 10 out of 10 in all seven areas of life. It's, I want what I've got. That's what the uh, Eastern teachings are. All Buddhist teaching is, want what you've got. Why would you want what you haven't got? It'll make you miserable for life. But the Eastern teachings are about the internal life. The Western teachings are about the external life. So you need to have both. Otherwise, you become a poor, happy person. You become an Eastern person with no money or you become a Western person with no spiritual internal happiness. Well, you don't want either. I think you've got to have both. That's the integration of the two worlds. And the integration of the two worlds is really good. You go, internally, I'm going to have satisfaction. I want what I've got internally, which is the seven areas of life, no matter what it is, who it's with, where I work for, I'm going to say, I do what I love and I love what I do. I am content. Then you have one goal on the outside. You go, and I'm shit, bum, horrible, bitchy, bloody unhappy that I haven't got that and I really want to go and get it. <laughs> That's the outside. Then you make wise decisions on the outside, but you're not searching for happiness through material achievements 
which is, uh, as all of you know from all of your histories, it's uh, a fallacy. Because every time you achieve a goal, guess what happens? You birth two more. Everybody knows that. <laughs> when my partner goes, oh, I'm finally running 20 kilometers uh, at, at the right speed, she, within 10 seconds she goes, and now, <laughs> and now, she births another one. When I meet people who climb Mount Everest and they're coming down, I go, how'd it go? And they go, oh, next year. They, they, they even think on the way down from the mountain, they're thinking of the next thing they're going to do. Achieving things in the material sense births more achieving things, which is how it's meant to go. You've got to be unhappy on the outside, discontent. However, discontent on the inside means you're hoping the outside will fill you up. Bad Bad, 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 bad. Don't think the outside's going to fill you up. It will never. But be unhappy on the outside and be happy with that. <laughs> and be happy on the inside and be happy with that. <laughs> it sounds like double Dutch, uh, but it's not. <laughs> Why do we say double Dutch? Why is that? It's double Dutch. I, I don't know where that, what the origin of that quote comes from. I know Dutch auction. Uh, is is a, a word we use here in Australia, Dutch auction, because they do have Dutch auctions. There are you know where they do it secretly, auction things behind uh, closed doors. Okay, what was the second thing you said you wanted to do just before we close up? Can you remember? Inspiration, motivation. Okay. So, inspiration, motivation. Um, motivation is when you get somebody in their lowest consciousness state of mind and you dangle a carrot and you say, I'm going to give you more pleasure than pain. If you bust your chops and you work your bum off, I'm going to give you a bonus. And so you motivate people by dangling a carrot at the end of a stick, and that carrot is a pleasure. So all marketing, all purchasing, um, most seduction, um, uh, emotional, mental trauma, most um, of uh, mental health problems, no, all of mental health problems become in causation, motivation. The promise of something at the end of, a, of, of an action. So a depressed person, if you say to a depressed person, uh, are you happy where you are? They go, no. And what are you doing about that? They go, well, I've given up because they've tried and tried and tried to make themselves happy by doing something and they've actually lost hope that tomorrow is going to be better than today. And that is endemic. That's built into our culture. It's built into your business. It's built into your uh, friendships. It's built into everything we do. It's built into all marketing. It's built into the Olympics. It's built into TV. It's built in. Motivation is sales. That's what it is. It's another word. Motivation never was a word. There was a thing called sales how to sell. 
And the more benefits you can give somebody, the more likely they are to buy it. So if you want to throw motivation out, you go inspiration versus sales. <laughs> this is pretty much what the topic is because the more you can deliver benefit to a person, the more likely they are to act. And that's called motivation. Inspiration, on the other hand, is when a person is content. And, and inspiration has a little saying that goes with it. It says, I need nothing, I want nothing, and therefore I've got everything. So do you hear, what do you hear in motivate, inspiration? You hear, I'm totally content, so you can't motivate me. The inspiration comes from the inside, motivation comes from the outside. It goes back to what we were talking about before. When you're motivated, you want something material to make you happy. When you're inspired, you're already happy. Nothing you do is going to improve your happiness. Nothing you're going to do is going to make you more satisfied. Nothing you're going to do is going to make you more content. The state of inspiration is where you already are where you want to be. And then you go to work. So, and all the zones in between are uh, just stages of moving from motivation. You become driven. You get the middle stage, the ideal stage for most people in, when they're healing is called ambivalence. If you can get to a state of ambivalence, you sort of go to work because you're, you, you like it a little bit, but you don't like it every bit. If you get to that stage, you're pretty getting pretty much up into the higher levels of um, inspiration. Inspiration has no mental health problems. It never will have a relationship problems. It's totally magnetic. People want to be around an inspired person, but people want to be around a motivated person, but not for very long. <laughs> like, you know, when you first have that honeymoon period in a relationship, you go, oh my God, I'm so motivated to be with you. And then about six months later, you go, uh-oh. Uh-oh. And then you have to work through up to ambivalence and back up to, to a state where you go, well, it is what it is and they are who they are and I love them anyway. And then a relationship starts to Well, um, if it makes it any easier for you, just imagine out in the forest a tree, right? Beautiful big green tree and the leaf at the top says, I don't want to grow anymore. Why should I reach for the sun? I'm pretty happy as I am. It's not going to be pretty. So you don't have a choice. <laughs> and I respect your fear and I respect that, but you don't have a choice. Your health depends on it and the health of the people around you. So you don't have to make it huge uh, as long as there is something out there that you're reaching up for. Uh, maybe, maybe you can teach contentment, and that's a goal. <laughs> that's not really. Why not? Yeah. All right, guys. I, what I love from this is the diversity of backgrounds of everybody who's here on the screen, and we've all been able to talk a language that crossed into our backgrounds and allowed us to have diversity of back history and origin of thought and where, we, where we've built our, our legends from and how we've created them. 
allowed us to be that person, but also to communicate in a way that talks about the future. And I think I, I really honour and respect uh, the fact that you're so open to have this conversation. So thank you all.